Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop right into things, here's a list of some of the topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. We discuss biochemical engineering as a field. We take a deep dive into bioactive bone cements and their biological effects and applications. We talk about the nature of bone and what makes it solid, how to build bone tissue in a petri dish, the cutting edge in implant technology, the secret life of strontium, the difference between good and bad inflammation. We also run the gamut on a whole bunch of metals, some of which are found in your body, and others which you should definitely avoid ingesting. And of course, more than would be fair to include in this quick overview, so let's get right into it. Daniela is a biomedical engineering PhD student at Ryerson University. Her research is focused on bioactive bone cements and their effect on bone formation, cell differentiation, and inflammation. Nation, nation, nation. Beyond the academic world, she loves cooking, camping, canoeing, and outdoor adventures of all types. So without further ado, we have Daniela Marks. Daniela, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I like that your introduction has this kind of alliterative feel to it with the Asian, 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 and then the cooking, and camping, me, I, I just noticed that. It's great. <laughs> Sometimes it kind of takes a second set of eyes and like just kind of hearing it externally for that to kind of pop out. So if that was uh, inadvertent, I'm looking forward to the poetic nature of today's episode, Sweet. if that's how things work. Where we're going to start is uh, at the beginning, the very, very beginning, not the beginning of the universe, but the okay. beginning of your academic universe as part yeah. of a, an attempt to kind of outline the academic path, which is unique for pretty much every guest and all academics. So in the introduction, we got that you are doing a biomedical engineering PhD. I think at least myself and many listeners probably want to know how it is that you got there. So let's start with the bachelor's degree and we're going to move forward from that. For sure. So I actually did my undergrad at McGill in biology and I focused mostly on uh, molecular and cell biology. So after that, I actually was not sure what I wanted to do at all. So I took a year off from school, traveled a bit to figure it out. You know, I started to think about other avenues and what I actually wanted to do. And I I realized that I really wanted to be in the biotech space, Mm -hmm. kind of applying my biology experience to real world problems kind of like optimizing medical devices, something like that. So I started to look for biomedical engineering labs. I wanted to move to Toronto, so I was looking for labs in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were looking for someone like me with a biology background. So luckily I found a lab at Ryerson that was working on really cool bioactive bone cements. And they were also looking for someone who had a biology background. So I started doing a master's in 2018, but I never actually finished the master's. I just fast-tracked straight to the okay. PhD program. So yep. I never did master's. And so here I am two years into my PhD, uh, gonna start my third year in September. And yeah, so that's you would I- have had a master's degree at this point if you hadn't fast-tracked. Yes, I would have. But basically, yeah, my, my supervisor was like, if you wanna do a PhD, you might as well just fast-track you might as well just skip the master's and try to do like a three and a half year PhD. So that would be pretty quick. Yeah. Given that it would have kind of been the, the combination of master's and PhD. Do you know other people who are in your field who've done it in that time frame? Yes. Okay. So it is, it is doable. I actually thought that Ryerson was more of like a, like a media related university with like more focus on arts. I didn't know they actually even had a biomed division. Is it, is it a big program? They do actually. They were like the one of the first uh, biomedical engineering programs in Canada. Wow. But yeah, they have like a pretty strong engineering department. 
they're very focused on like going into like industry afterwards. Like they're very focused on getting students right into like jobs. But usually in engineering, you could just get a job after undergrad. So they have like a pretty good, strong engineering thing going on. And I think a lot of schools in Canada like used the Ryerson biomedical engineering program kind of based theirs off Ryerson's. It was like one of the first. That's great. Yeah. So you're, you're one of the pioneers. It's also part of the pioneering program. Yeah, it's a very new program. It's like a lot of mechanical engineers, a lot of different people working on these biomedical engineering problems. So it's a very, it's still like a very new emerging thing. Mm -hmm. Sounds, sounds highly multidisciplinary. It is, it is. Which is, I think, kind of the, the goal. There are so many people who are highly focused in their own fields, bringing people together and kind of bringing these, these different ideas, ways of thinking fields together. That's where I believe the biggest change happens and where the magic happens for sure which is great for me because i'm pure biology background and i i've never like i'm not an engineer at all and it's cool that i get to be working on these engineering problems you know obviously i have like the basics and like physics and stuff but i'm i didn't do my undergrad engineering and i'm able to lend my expertise to these right so you're not expected then to have that high level mathematical background well, for some projects you are, but for some, like, you don't have to. Specifically for mine, my project, I'm focused on the biological effects of these materials. So, you know, I have to learn about the materials, but I'm not, like, an expert in material science. But I'm, I'm learning about it, right? So right. I'm bringing that biology, biology background to the material problem. Right. Lots of idea sharing, I assume, specifically between the bio and the engineering sides of things. Sure. So I'm curious actually to go even even further backwards. We sure. tend to focus on the academic path here, but I'm just kind of curious because we kind of ran through that in quite a quite a quick time period. We do have a couple of minutes to kind of go back to childhood. Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't remember ever talking to people in elementary school or high school who were like definitely gung ho on becoming biomedical engineers. It wasn't really something that we knew about. What right. did you want to do with your life when you were at the early stages of your pre-adolescence? I would say that I always wanted to do something in science. I didn't really know what. The only thing I really know would be a doctor. So I was kind of like, okay, I'll just go the science route, go like pure biology, and then see if I want to go to medical school afterwards. So I kind of just like stuck with that. I was always really good at biology and kind of like memorizing things. Like I was always very like science oriented. So I kind of just went full force towards that. And then after undergrad, like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really even know that I could go into biomedical engineering. It kind of just like happened. It, it wasn't really something that I wanted to be when I was younger, but I wanted to be maybe a doctor or something mm -hmm. like that. Have those aspirations totally dissolved or... Do you still kind of think about the doctor route? Well, I did my MCATs and everything. Like I yeah. could still, I could still go down that route if I wanted to, but I don't think, I don't think I have uh, that many years of school left in me. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting to say that as a PhD. I guess that makes sense that you want to really kind of wrap this PhD up in the next uh, eighteen to twenty-four months. That's why I'm actually doing the like fast track PhD in this lab in particular because I can do it in such a short period of time. Right. Most people who I've met who are in PhDs or contemplating it have kind of, they've taken the, the approach or at least their idea is you got to really want it and be ready to handle kind of whatever's thrown at you. And sometimes that is a couple of extra years of schooling, but it seems like you're quite confident you'll be able to finish this degree in a reasonable amount of time. So I think that's a unique position. I am like, I, I, you know, I've worked really hard up until this point. I have two papers already done. I only need three papers. So and two I have done, like, you, you say two papers published or two papers ready to be? One, one published, one almost published. Okay. Under, and then, yeah. So, so there is actually that expectation of like hitting a certain number. For sure. And I'm, you know, I'm hitting my milestones. I'm working really hard to like get it done in a reasonable amount of time. So, but it, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's not easy. Right. So I, I believe I mentioned this uh, in the last couple of episodes, but I was in a master's degree up until about a month ago and I decided to withdraw from oh, it. Really? 
I didn't I I didn't know that. What happened with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody comes out of this podcast thinking they're going to be talking to a fellow academic. I do could still consider myself one, given that I'm in between master's degrees. I'm applying to another master's okay. in teaching and learning. Cool. So it's what not going to be. Sorry. What were, you, what were you? What was your master's in before? Yeah. So I was doing a uh, master's in psychology in a psycholinguistics lab. So I was cool. studying language processing and the mental lexicon. Super interesting. Among other things. At some point, I will, I, I, I will kind of slowly divulge more information about what my master's was about through future episodes. Maybe I'll pop back into it later uh, if, if it ends up being somewhat related to bioactive bone cements. Another yeah. great alliteration. Man, so many. You're pointing all these things out that I didn't even notice. It's awesome. If I was studying bioactive bone cements, I would, I, like, I would, I would make pins for it. I would, I would, <laughs> my whole life would revolve around that alliteration. <laughs> Speaking of bioactive bone cements, let's, uh, let's start breaking down this introduction. It. It's a short but sweet introduction. Some of them kind of ramble on. Nothing against people who decide to ramble on. I actually like when they're super dense with information. So what we're going to do, speaking of density and bones, we'll talk about bioactive bone cements. So let's break yeah, it down, I guess, maybe good. one word at a time. Let's do it. So bioactive, what does bioactive mean? Um, I can kind of talk about what bioactive means by first saying like the opposite of what bioactive means. Mm -hmm. So like inert would be the opposite. So like an inert material is a material that doesn't interact at all with the body when it's in the body. So an example would be like a titanium or stainless steel implant. So it's inert. So bioactive is a material that undergoes a spontaneous reaction inside the body when it reacts with body fluids. And in terms of bone, this results in a chemical bond between the material and bone. So a bioactive material, it induces like the formation of a direct chemical bond between the implant and bone. That's basically like the gist of bioactive. Another hallmark of a bioactive material would be that the body doesn't really ne uh, recognize it as a foreign material. So it doesn't uh, result in the formation of a lot of scar tissue. For example, like a bioactive glass that goes into bone results in the formation of hydroxyapatite on the surface of- mm, What? Yeah. Hydroxyapatite, like when you get really hungry for hydroxy? So no, hydroxyapatite is actually the inorganic phase of bone. It's actually like the mineral inside of bone. Okay. Hydroxyapatite. Yeah. This is inside of my bones, like right now? Yeah. So the, the, the thing, if you feel your elbow, yeah. the thing that makes it really hard yeah. is the, a mineral called hydroxyapatite. So that's actually why your bones are so like hard. They're made out of these minerals that's basically calcium and phosphorus. I was about to ask about calcium. So yeah, calcium and phosphorus, a chemical made up of calcium and phosphorus, which we already know are in our bones, right? Okay. Uh, especially calcium. That's that's like the inorganic part of your bone. That's what that's what it is. It's called hydroxyapatite. The like organic part of your bone is collagen. So your bones are basically made out of collagen and this mineral called hydroxyapatite. The hydroxyapatite solidifies the collagen. Yes. Okay. So you did bring up one, one word, which kind of didn't come up in the, in the bioactive bone cements trifecta of words, the, the word phrase, which is implant. So are bioactive bone cements specifically used for implants or can they be used in other, other kinds of domains? They could be used to, well, they could be used alongside of an implant. They could be used by themselves, for example, just to like fill a void in the bone, but the ones that I'm working on uh, would be like alongside an implant. Basically like helping solidify that bond between the implant and the bone, kind of as a glue that the bone can actually recognize and then bind to it. Because bone is not gonna be able to bind to like a titanium implant or something that's inert. Right. The next generation of these materials, we're trying to like go a step further, you know? I think I understand. Let's say, for example, I break my hip and I need a hip replacement. Hopefully mm -hmm. this doesn't happen to me anytime soon. I'm still pretty young. Should have pretty solid hips at this point. They don't lie, by the way. So if I have to replace my hip, can I get a titanium hip replacement and then attach the titanium to the bone via bioactive bone cements? Exactly. So okay. actually what they use now is this material called PMMA. Basically, we're trying to make a material that is like better than PMMA. So that is what they use right now. 
but it's it's an inert material that is basically used as like uh, a grout kind of like a glue yeah. but it, it kind of stabilizes the implant but um there's a lot of problems with it and it's not bioactive so what we're trying to do is make a replacement material that is bioactive and doesn't have all the problems that it has. So that, like currently they do use a type of like bone cement when you get a hip implant to kind of stabilize the titanium implant. What are some of the problems with it other than that it is not bioactive? So basically when it sets, it has an exothermic reaction, right. which, oh, it releases heat when it yeah. sets, which yeah. can cause tissue death. Oh, and, wow. you know, the, like there's a couple of other problems with it. I'm trying to think. Wait, that's um, actually, that's actually crazy that like, did we know that that was a thing that when you put these inert substances into the body, they release heat and then kill cells. Like, did we know that when we first started doing these procedures and how are we still even doing them? That sounds crazy. It is like the gold standard. Like it is the best we have right now. If we want to make something that's a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Another problem that it has is like it changes it, it like sometimes shrinks when it sets, you know, it doesn't maintain the same volume and that's really bad for implant stability. Yeah. Another, like that could cause like loosening of the implants. Yeah. Also because it doesn't bind directly to bone, there has been some problems with like bacterial infections and things like that. Another positive thing about bioactive cements is that they can release certain ions that actually are antibacterial. So our materials are antibacterial because they release zinc. So that's just like an example of kind of like an added benefit of a bioactive material. So zinc, zinc, just because we've, we've spoken about quite a few metals so far, and some of them seem to be good, some of them seem to be bad. So zinc, when it's released in your body, is great. Titanium, when it's inserted into your body, not as great. So it's and... actually not the titanium that's bad. The titanium isn't really doing anything. It's the bone cement called PMMA that is not the best. Got it. There's a lot of problems with it. So what we're trying to do is we're making a cement to stabilize that titanium implant, which is which is actually fine. Like it's an inert material. Um, it's the PMMA, which is like an acrylic-based cement that is the gold standard for these types of procedures. That that we want to make something better. Okay. Yeah. So you're definitely biased because you work with these new bioactive bone cements. I want you to try if you can, to tell us what the drawbacks are of bioactive bone cements. I don't really want to get into like the testing that we're doing right now, but we're, we're optimizing the materials. They're not exactly perfect yet, right? Yeah. But these like bioactive materials are used currently in a lot of applications, like they're used in dentistry, they're used in like craniofacial surgeries. And let me think. I feel like the ones that are commercially available are pretty good for their application. The bioactive bone cements you're working with, can those also be used in, by dentists, like for, for like tooth related things? Yeah, they could be. They're, they're not like, uh, like FDA approved yet, but like, let's say they were, they could be. For okay. Certain. It isn't yeah. just like specialized to large bone implants. This can be used for little... It no, it isn't. But um, basically, oh, okay. I could, I can't think of a, uh, I can't think of a drawback. So the ones that are used in dentistry, they actually contain aluminum in them, and aluminum is uh, very toxic when it's inside your body. So in dentistry, it's not, uh, it's not really toxic because it's not like implanted. Let's say like near your body fluids. Mm -hmm. So they have actually tried to take these dental materials that contain aluminum and implant them into like skeletal sites to see if they would work. And they have caused some issues. So aluminum could cause like, like maybe the softening of bones. Okay. So it'll cause bone to be less mineralized. So less hydroxyapatite, less mineral, less hard, which is bad if you want your bones to be mineralized. And it could also have some neurotoxic effects, bad for your brain. You're saying aluminum can have Aluminum. So our materials don't have aluminum. 
but these materials so they have not been commercialized yet they're not widely used which is what we're trying to do basically we're taking these materials that are widely used in dentistry that are commercial they're fda approved but they're not fda approved for the skeleton inside your body mm -hmm. so what we're doing is we're taking the aluminum out we're adding these other ions in like zinc another one that i haven't mentioned yet is strontium we're adding these in and we're we're testing them to be you know these bone cements that could be used um, in a variety of different applications so you're like a biomedical engineer but there's also it sounds like there's a lot of chemistry going on here as well do you also have chemists who are working with you on on your on your research team I feel like we need like a background in chemistry. We don't really have any chemists working for us. It's just something you kind of have to like, you know, you have to like read up on it. You have to read up on the background and read up on the chemistry. Okay. Just additional information they want you to know. No, no chemistry specialists. I, I wish I had my periodic table of the elements in front of me because you're dropping lots of, lots of funky elements. I could talk a lot about zinc and strontium, especially strontium. That's what my first paper is all about. So I could talk forever about strontium and bone. If okay, so this is this is great. If you were going to talk forever about strontium, what would the thesis of your strontium talk be about? Uh, the thesis, well, I could talk about the mechanisms of action of strontium. What's like what's like the coolest thing about strontium? Why why would you spend all your time preparing to write a paper about strontium? What is it about strontium that myself and the listeners would really want to know um, about? Okay, well. Do you know about osteoporosis? You know what osteoporosis is? Uh, I believe it's like an age-related age degeneration of bone. Yeah. So in like 2004, strontium was actually clinically approved to treat osteoporosis. And people with osteoporosis were taking strontium as a medication to help mm -hmm. with their osteoporosis. So strontium is actually really beneficial to bone. And I could talk a lot about why and how, but... That's just like a cool thing about strontium. People have been researching strontium for a very long time because it's basically very similar to calcium. So it goes right into your bones when you ingest it. It's a, bo a bone seeking element. Whoa. Um, what is it seeking though? Is it seeking the calcium? Well, it, it looks like calcium to your, bo to your bones, to your body. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just a little bit bigger. Like if you look at a periodic table, it's right below calcium on the periodic table. Okay. So your body sees strontium as calcium. So it actually, if you are taking strontium, which a lot of people have taken it for osteoporosis, it will go into your bones and there will be strontium in your bones for years because it'll replace the calcium in your bone. Like your, your body will see it as calcium and just put it right into the hydroxyapatite. Okay. If they're read as being the same kind of thing, like let's say they, they bind to the bone in the same way. I'm imagining there's some difference between calcium and strontium in bone. Well, the difference is they have slightly different effects. For example, on cells, so bone cells. Mm -hmm. So we have like osteoblasts and osteoclasts. Blasts build bone, so they are bone forming. Blasts build bone. Oh my goodness. There we go. You should be a linguist. You should be. That's build funny. bone, bioactive bone, cements. Yeah, a lot of bees. Cooking, camping, canoeing. Okay. That's so funny. I didn't notice that. I, I guess I am. I'm like all about alliteration. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to read one of your papers. I wonder how many how many instances of alliteration I could find. So okay. blasts and class blasts build bone. And clasts, so they remove bone. Um I don't really have an alliteration for that, but I just remember opposite class of kill, class cleave. Class cut, class. Class cut, maybe. Okay. That could be one. So they work in harmony, the blast and the clasts. Yeah, they work in harmony. So basically these cells, they have a receptor on them called a calcium sensing receptor. So this I receptor, like that. That's a very, it's a very sensible name. <laughs> Unless it doesn't sense calcium. <laughs> it does, it does. Okay. So it, it binds calcium, but it also binds strontium. What researchers have found is that they elicit slightly different signaling pathways when they bind that kind of results in similar outcomes. So the calcium sensing receptor, it mediates some very important processes in cells, like basically telling the cell, keep living, die, 
get older, grow up, don't grow up, you know, that's like what the receptor is important for. So yeah, they, they do similar things, but they could initiate slightly different pathways. Yeah. Perfect. So strontium for, for all intents and purposes does similar things, but some pathways are different, but it still tells cells when to die, when to grow up, when to do these things. Right. Yeah. Okay. You have like a trace amount of strontium in your body at all times because some food that you eat contains strontium. I think everybody has like a, a very small trace amount of strontium already in their bones. But if like in addition to that, you take some type of strontium supplement, it will have like a biological effect on your bones. And there's a level that you can take that's toxic, which can cause problems with calcium. Like if you have too much strontium in your bones, you don't have enough calcium. And that's going to cause problems. So it's not exactly like eating too much calcium. Like it is different and it, it, there is like a toxic level. Okay. So it's kind of like a Goldilocks zone of calcium strontium interaction. Yeah, people aren't really ingesting like a level of strontium that's going to do anything. Yeah. Some foods have higher levels, just like trace amounts of like a lot of metals that like we're constantly eating. I feel like that's something people don't think about enough is that we're just constantly ingesting tiny amounts of metals. Like you sure. need a trace amount of zinc in your body for a lot of your enzymes to work. Mm-hmm. A lot of your enzymes use zinc. A lot of these metals are already in your body and you don't really need strontium, but you definitely need zinc. So. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in mind next time at the grocery store. I think cereal has zinc maybe. I'm not sure. Okay. I feel like, I feel like one of those things is something that people lack when they become vegans. They don't like adapt their diet properly. Maybe like, I, I think, I feel like zinc is in meats. Yeah, maybe it's iron. I think iron. I'm thinking of iron. Another metal that we haven't yet spoken about. Is strontium radioactive? So it's not, but it can be. There's stable strontium and there's radioactive strontium. So one of the byproducts of like nuclear reactions and nuclear meltdowns is like radioactive strontium, which is really bad for you. And one of the reasons why we know a lot about strontium actually is because of research into radioactive strontium in the 40s and 50s people wanted to know what would happen if you ingested radioactive strontium because they were worried about nuclear events happening Mm -hmm. so that kind of led people to realize how much it affects our bones so that's kind of how a lot of research in strontium kind of started was like about radioactive strontium which is kind of interesting people were worried about you know nuclear warfare we're researching and now and now we're just making better implants now we're actually like yeah it's good for you you know stable strontium (laughs) i like that that duality that strontium can be great and also terrible yeah you know like you don't want to upset strontium make it unstable and then kill yourself (laughs) yeah so bioactive bone cements you said they have effects on bone formation cell differentiation and inflammation one of the things we've mainly spoken about is how they're good at as acting as an adhesive Mm-hmm. You attach implants to bone, but what about bone formation specifically? Like, can I put bioactive bone cements onto a bone to promote bone growth? So that's exactly what my research is about. Okay. Um, what I do is I take the bone cements and I actually culture them with cells, and I measure different kind of I measure different things with the cells to see if they're growing, to see if they're differentiating, and to see if the cements are actually promoting these effects. And the reason why, like, we hypothesize, like, the reason why we're even interested in that is because we're putting these ions into the bone cements, like strontium, like zinc, that should have this biological response. Like I said with strontium, you know, it binds to this receptor on bone cells that actually causes them to replicate and differentiate. You can actually like measure bone formation in a petri dish with cells and see how it's affected by the cements. Okay. Which is something that I, I'm doing currently. Okay, perfect. So you're trying to build bone. Yeah, it's really not that hard to do. What I do is I take rat bones and I take the osteoblasts out of the bones and I actually culture them in vitro. In vitro, directly translated from Latin means in glass. But in oh, vitro- Oh, wow. Didn't know that. 
Yeah, it, it basically means you're working with cells. And in vivo means with, you're working with animals. Okay. Like vivre, French, to live. And vitro, like French. So I, I, guess, I guess French is more similar to Latin in, in that it sense. Is, yeah, like vitre is glass. Yeah. Right? I totally. <laughs> this is, this is, this is eye-opening. I knew in vivo, like I knew what in vivo was just kind of by like the intuitive nature of like vivre, but I never thought of the glass. Anyways, yeah. glass is in like a picture. I use glass, I use plastic, but it's kind of the same. It's, it's all about like just working with cells outside of the body, outside mm-hmm. of the body. So basically with those cells, what I can do is I can stimulate them to form, form bone by just giving them certain like supplements and they actually do form bone mineralized little nodules and what i can do is i can basically measure how much bone they formed with this technique that i use okay you're talking about supplements though when you say supplements you're, you're saying like that's that's your bioactive cements no that's just the control of how to form bone in culture is you have like these cells that are bone forming and then you just need to give them a few supplements so they start forming bone and that's like your baseline, like without the bone cements, that would be like the control, right? I'm just mm-hmm. giving them some supplements, they're forming bone, and that's how much bone they form after 14 days in culture, let's say. Got it, yeah. And, but like they need these supplements to form bone in culture, and then the test group would be the bioactive bone cement with the supplements. Is it increasing bone formation above the control? Perfect. That makes complete that's sense. One of, that's one of the tests that I do. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Now it's, it's all, I wanted to make sure I knew exactly where the bioactive bone cements were coming in. So there, this is, this is the treatment. Yes. Essentially. And so we've, we've spoken about the formation now, let's kind of slide into this idea of differentiation. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about cell differentiation? Cool. Totally. So basically big, big topic. Yeah, it is. It is a big topic, but I'll, I'll try to break it down. Basically, you have... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Pause, pause, pause. This is, this is a great opportunity to do yeah. Explain Like I'm Five. <laughs> so this is one of our favorite segments here on Abstract, oh. at least, and when I say we, I mean me. <laughs> so please explain cell differentiation to me as if I am a five-year-old, and I will stop you if there are things that my five-year-old self does not understand. I'll try to make it as basic as possible. Okay. So I've talked about osteoblast cells quite a bit, right? We can't use we can't, oh, use, I can't terms use, ever use Yeah, this is I'll, this talk is I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of like like a a kid growing up to be like an adult. Go right? for it. Go for it. So you have like a kid, and they have to go through like certain stages before they get to, let's say university is like the end stage. Okay. okay. So, you know, it's like elementary school, That's where high I am school now. Yeah. university. So there's like certain things they have to pass through and certain milestones that they have to get through to get to their adult stage. Let's say is when they're, let's say uh, the adult stage is when they're graduated university, like arbitrarily. So it's these like different like checkpoints. For a cell, that's kind of like differentiation basically means the cell is growing up and it's getting mature. It's becoming a mature cell. But the checkpoints are basically expressing certain proteins that kind of tell the cell, okay, you're going in the right direction and you're going to be mature one day. I think that was okay. So so hold on a second. It was it was really just that that protein thing where where we start yeah, to lose the, the five-year-old analogy. So let's just, let's, let's rewind tw- 20 seconds. So, so I, am, I am a child right now growing up. I am like a cell differentiating. Mm-hmm. And when I get to the age of arbitrarily graduating from university, I will be fully differentiated. Yes. Along the way, I will graduate from lots of different schools. And those are the points where 
they're just markers that show that you are becoming mature. Let's say when you have like elementary school, middle school, and high school all checked, then you are mature. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of just like, you need these three things on your report card or like CD mm -hmm. that somebody looks at it and they're like, you're a mature cell now. Okay. You have these three things. Right. Like by showing you my diploma, that is an indication that I have completed a phase of life. Yeah, or even like, okay, you just have elementary school. Okay, you're starting your differentiation. I know now this is a marker that I can tell that you have started the process of differentiation. And then middle school, um, you are like in the middle phase of your differentiation. It's just a marker that tells me mm -hmm. um, what phase you're in. And then once you have the third one, you're, you, you are a mature cell now because you have these three things. And for a cell, those things would be proteins. Okay. So w what are the proteins doing for us exactly? Are they the signal that like we've graduated from university? For example, they're like functional, right? So proteins for a cell are usually like they're doing something important. They, they have a specific function for the end goal. So a bone forming cell, the end goal is to form bone. Mm -hmm. So those proteins are going to help it get there to actually yeah. accomplish that. Great. There are proteins. They will help the bone achieve its goal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Random proteins. Like their proteins are kind of like molecular machines. Like they do things in the cell, right? So if the function of the cell is to form bone, one of those proteins could probably like help it form bone or even like maybe help it become uh, like change shape so that it's able to like move around, you know, different, different proteins, different functions. Okay. Okay, great. We're going to pop out of the uh, explain like in five segment. Congratulations. You made it. Snaps. Yay. Snaps for Daniela. We only use the word protein seven times. And uh, I, <laughs> I guess. Complicated words though, other than protein. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was, that was pretty, pretty solid. I'm, I'm looking forward to playing that segment of the episode for some resident five-year-olds and mm -hmm. seeing, seeing what their feedback is. Maybe they want to head down the, the path of biomedical engineering now. I guess the third part of that, of that sentence here from our introduction, I like pulling back to the intro of bioactive bone cement effects is inflammation. So presumably they're decreasing inflammation. If that is what is happening, let's talk about that process hopefully decreasing inflammation. To talk about that, I'm just going to talk about zinc okay. because that's the main ion that is anti-inflammatory that our cements are releasing. Just like basics of like inflammation. Inflammation is basically when you get a cut or when you have like any bacterial infection, it's kind of like the process that happens after that so that your cells can come in and help the situation basically remove the bacteria remove like dead cells create scar tissue that process of events is like very complicated mm -hmm. it's a lot of different steps that are happening right but the end goal is to basically like help the problem that's happening if it's let's say like a bacteria that entered your blood or even if you just cut yourself it's an it's an inflammatory reaction and the part that i'm really focused on is the molecules that signal for this reaction to happen and like the, the things that mediate this process. So the proteins, um, the basically signal for cells to infiltrate this area and start the inflammatory process. Uh, what I'm interested in is how like our materials would affect these molecules because they're like the, the, the signaling molecules of this whole process. If you have excessive inflammation, it would be very detrimental to the biomaterial that you're implanting into the body. You know, it would create like a lot of scar tissue and the material wouldn't be able to bind with the bone properly. So if you have too much inflammation, it's a really bad thing. So trying to help mediate this process, something I'm interested in looking at with these materials. So basically we know that zinc has already been found to increase anti-inflammatory molecules. So I'm interested in, okay, our material has zinc, so maybe it could also increase anti-inflammatory molecules 
and help with the inflammatory process. So there's something that I want to clear up because in, in life, it has appeared to me thus far that inflammation is a thing you want to go away or get rid of. So people take anti-inflammatory medication to reduce inflammation. But the way you're describing the inflammatory process is actually very helpful. Inflammation sounds like a great thing. I'm happy inflammation happens so that it can allow these processes to be undergone and heal my cuts, et cetera. So is inflammation good or is inflammation bad? And when do we want it and when do we not? It's, it's both. It's definitely a balance. Like there's a reason why we have inflammation. There's a reason why we have like anti-inflammatory molecules in our body because it's something that needs to be controlled and our body is very good at controlling it for the most part. But people don't, I guess people don't really realize that when you have a cut, just the process of healing that cut and making it a little scar or a scab is an inflammatory process that's very beneficial. But let's say you're allergic to peanut butter, your body is recognizing peanut butter as like a bacteria that's gonna kill you. And you have like a really intense inflammatory reaction that's not good for you because peanut butter is just peanut butter. And obviously there's some inflammatory reactions that your body can produce that can kill you, like, um, like anaphylactic shock, for example. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's some diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and these things where basically your bot, your inflammatory system or your immune system is working against you. It's a balance. It's a very delicate balance. Okay. So when the immune system is working against you, it's producing inflammation when you don't want it. When the immune system is working for you, it's giving you inflammation exactly when you need it. Yeah. When it's working against you, it's attacking your own body, which is bad, right? You don't want that. So that you're ha- saying attacking though, but, but when, like when I have an inflammatory process in my knee, when I scrape it, is, 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 is my body like attacking itself in that sense? Oh, like if you cut your knee and it's, um, it's just like healing the wound. Yeah. Like, like how, yeah, can, how can an inflammatory process attack my body, but also help my body? Oh no. Like your inflammatory processes, if you don't have any immune diseases are not attacking your body. I was just referring to some people have like immune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or like inflammatory bowel disease or some things where your your immune system is fighting against you and that's like a real thing that some people like that happens to some people mm-hmm. where your in your immune system is basically attacking your own body. Basically the um, the immune system is extremely complicated and it has to like goes hand in hand with inflammation. Mm-hmm. But um Perfect. I didn't expect this to be a discussion about the immune system. Sometimes we just naturally end up here, you know? No, yeah, it's really cool. It is kind of, uh, it's super interesting and super complicated. I really like how, this is I think the first time I felt so like almost at a loss in a good way because your research is related to so many different things. I know. It's kind of, it's an interesting challenge for me to, to direct and keep things in, in a kind of a choo-choo train of coherence because there are just so many different processes that we could sit here and talk about. As you were saying, for hours, we could oh have been still talking about strontium, you know? It's crazy. I know. You could read my paper on strontium. It's really, really, really long. And there's a lot to talk about, like a lot, a lot to talk about. You're not selling but, it. You can read it. It's very long, unrelated to anything you're a, doing in your life. It's a, it's a like review paper. It's really hard to read the whole thing, right? It's yeah. Well, but, uh, please do send it to me. I will, I will check out at least the introduction and conclusion. Just read the abstract. <laughs> yeah, abstract. I'll read the title and then I'll just make my decision from there, honestly. Here's our, I have a whole figure on differentiation. So. Awesome. So let's, uh, let's I mean, we, we basically ran through the, the whole sentence. I love it. See, this is, this is the beauty about, about this, this is that we can take one sentence. Her research is focused on bioactive bone cements and their effect on bone formation, cell differentiation, and inflammation. One sentence was like 16 words and we get a good 45, 50 minutes of beautiful, beautiful content. So thank you for that. I was worried that your introduction was a little, was, was, was missing something, but it turns out the information was all in, it was inside of you. Just waiting to come There's up. a lot, there's a lot of information. We yeah. could talk about it for hours, I'm sure. Absolutely. Maybe we'll do like a mega episode at, at some point. I'll have to bring you back on when you're finishing up your degree. And we'll just, we'll just three and a half hours, just chug through the whole Strontium paper. But until then, we're going to close off this episode with a couple of questions. A couple of questions. Okay.
first question is, how do you, Daniela Marks, strike a work-life balance that works for you? And what does that look like as a PhD student? Okay, well, personally for me, I like to do like the nine to five thing. I like to have like a schedule. And even though as a PhD student, sometimes you're like working in the lab a lot, and then sometimes you're writing. For example, like since March, we've been under lockdown and I haven't been able to, I haven't been able to come to the lab to do anything. So I've been like a writer basically, waking up every day and writing. I feel like it's really important to just have a kind of like this block before lunch and this block after lunch and just get like a solid amount of work done like every day. Just try to be happy with the amount of work you've done. Yeah, and then try to just not think about it after work, you know? Mm-hmm. like fun stuff afterwards like biking and running or hiking or camping or whatever you know I don't yeah know. I, that's a great answer uh I guess it is easy to maybe sleep in and I don't know like start after I don't know it's it's as a PhD student you're doing so many different things and it's not necessarily structured that I feel like you have to structure it like for yourself mm-hmm. you have to like find that structure And when I was doing a lot of lab work and I was working with cells a lot, I would have to come in on the weekends a lot and work a lot of weekends. So I guess now that's more of the balance that I've struck, like working at home is like try to get like a nine to five, like solid amount of writing in every day. Sometimes the balance swings, you know, sometimes you're having to work on the weekends and you're having to work super late. Sometimes it happens. So it's, it's a constant, constant thing. Well, good for you for being able to create your own nine to five job out of an academic workflow. Cause I know that was very hard for me back when I was in my degree and will probably be very hard for me moving forward in any career that I go into. Um, so given that you have that capacity to work that time slot, when you have to create your own schedule, amazing, incredible. Good luck with that. Yeah, moving forward. Not always easy, honestly. It's not always nine to five, but if you have that goal in mind, at least you could like try, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what I try to do. Obviously, a lot of the time, you know, if you don't have to wake up early every day, it's sometimes really hard to like do it. But I find that my most productive hours are like in the morning. So yeah. And when I was working in the lab, I, you know, I, I had like a lab every day, like in the morning, I would work in the lab. And then in the afternoon, I would be writing and I would do that every day. And that was like my schedule. So right. just whatever works for you. Okay. I, I do like how the fact that you've created a nine to five for yourself will resonate with people who aren't in the academic field and for people who are actually working jobs yeah. between the hours of nine and five o'clock, which is all of our listeners probably above the age of 30, if, with the exception of uh, other academics or people who don't have that kind of lifestyle. But I think we can all appreciate that the nine to five is a common grind that many of us experience. So that's great. And this brings us to our final question, which if you have listened to a couple of episodes all the way through, then you will know what the question is. Do you know what the question is? I don't. I, have, I, I actually don't. No problem. You must be one of the listeners who listens 20 minutes in and leaves. If you're one of those listeners who's listening right now, you're actually not because you're still with us. So thank you. The final question is, how would you describe yourself as a person outside of academia and as a student within academia using one to three words for each? And are those the same descriptors? Hmm. That's kind of a tough one. I should have I should have listened to the podcast to know that that was coming. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the cheat code. Uh, so three words to describe myself, like in my personal life and then in academia. Mm-hmm. Could be in, one to three words. They can be individual or they can form a phrase. I would say fun-loving, mm-hmm. energetic, and tenacious. Like. So I would say that would be for maybe both of them. Like I, you know, I, I do like to have fun. I do like to, you know, have fun with my coworkers in the lab when we were in the lab, you know, I like the social aspects of coming to the hospital and I like to joke around, you know, so I would say, but I'm also like a go-getter. I really like to get my work in. So that'd be like the tenacious. I like to get, come in, get my work done, you know, and like in my free time, I said, I like to, travel I like to you know 
do like outdoor sports and stuff like that, like hiking. I just went on a hiking trip in Alberta. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Fun loving for sure. The way that you describe those, even though you said they're the same for both, you, you really described fun loving as both and then energetic as both and tenacious as academic related. But I then think also, it's, like, I'm a go-getter with trying, in my personal life, I guess, like, hiking and trying to do all these adventurous things. I would say, like, that's tenacious in my personal life as well. Mm-hmm. I just found three to, to describe both, so I have to do ha- half the work that I would have had to do. Interesting. <laughs> I typed the word tenacious into Google, into uh, a Word document, and the synonyms are the following. Let me know if, if Microsoft Word is doing a good job here. Synonyms for tenacious. Stubborn, resolute firm and persistent not exactly adventurous persistent Persistent. okay i'll i'll get a nice uh, tenacious slash persistent i I guess you're right it doesn't actually describe uh, my personal life but i um i think i i think i did a good job i think i described myself okay i can't tell you otherwise if you think you did a good job then i think you did a great job thank you (laughs) so we'll leave it at that this hour has flown by I feel like I've learned a ton. I'm going to actually, I mean, I, I will re-listen to this before posting it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to relearning all of the juicy content that has been exposed in today's episode. So thank you so much, Danielle, for coming on. This is Abstract. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.